Well, good morning to you. It's just lovely to be back in New Beginnings. I've just had um, six weeks preaching in in Tenerife. It's a real tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, So I'm I'm glad to be back um, and looking forward to sharing with you. I'd ask you, if you will, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. We're going to read just a very few verses from verse 18 to the end of verse 22. Matthew chapter 4, and the heading in my Bible is the calling of the first disciples, the calling of the first disciples. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Well, we do pray that God will add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Father, we thank you for this wonderful privilege we have of looking at your precious word together. We have to confess that sometimes we read it and we're not really sure what it means or how it applies to our lives. But but this passage is really clear. And we want to pray, Father, that you would give us a clear understanding of what it is you're saying to us this morning. And we pray that our hearts might be so helped and touched by the Holy Spirit that we might be able to take on board whatever you're saying and we pray Father that you would make it a time of encouragement and blessing to us we just ask these things Father as we say thank you for the lovely precious and wonderful name of the Lord Jesus Amen well I want to share with you something this morning that I think is quite important and significant and I hope you think so too you probably will have heard of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who uh, was Indian, of course. Well, he started off life, I think, in South Africa. And when he was in South Africa, he met Christians. And he was quite impacted by uh, the Christians. And he was asked on one occasion by a close friend, if you admire Christ so much, why don't you become a Christian? And his response was really interesting. He responded by saying, when I meet a Christian who is a follower of Christ, I may consider it. And I think that for very many years there's been a great deal of confusion when it comes to understanding what a disciple is. But then there always has been. And I think that when Muslim folks come into this country and they believe they're coming to a Christian country and they see the ads on TV and the hoardings and the way in which sexuality is paraded, that it's no wonder that they think that Christianity is not really serious and not worth following. There's been a huge amount of confusion as to what Christianity is. Even the folks outside in the houses nearby, they have this perception of Christianity and and what it is. This confusion has 
really existed since the time of Jesus. You'll remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles and teach Sunday school and give generously and go to church from time to time? We did all of these things. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I find that these are some of the most frightening verses in the Gospel of Matthew. Maybe even in the whole of the New Testament. The, pro- the possibility that there would be folks who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. And Jesus will say, listen, I never knew you. And this really ought to challenge our hearts. Seriously. Because of the significance. Despite their religious appearance attendance at synagogues these people though they were religious on the outside clearly didn't really know Jesus and that's a a real concern and as you go through the New Testament you'll see that Jesus compared a professing but unconverted Christians if I may use that expression unbelieving believers Folks who masqueraded as Christians. He compared them to women waiting for a bridegroom to appear for a wedding banquet. But they were unprepared for his coming. And therefore were shut out of the wedding. Excluded from the celebration. That's awful. And again Jesus compared the unbelieving believers to a man who was given a talent to invest. But who failed to use it. And was condemned by his master on the day of reckoning. In fact the words used are really quite uh, frightening. He was cast out into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's a picture that really isn't very um, encouraging at all. Now I'm sure that you will all have seen graffiti. There's... It's all around us, isn't it? In fact, our council tax is probably upped a little bit, so uh, we can employ people to go and wash it off the walls. Isn't that right? We don't really like graffiti. But there is that within us which likes to uh, do the things that we shouldn't do. So when you see a label that says wet paint, the first thing you do is you touch it to see if it really is wet. Isn't that right? I don't know. That, that's just the way we are. Well, it has been said that uh, as graffiti, sometimes um, folks graffiti posters, that there are people who have graffitied the face of Christ. And that's, that's a terrible thought. But his likeness... And loveliness has been smeared and smudged by our prejudices and preferences which blind us. And the truth is that so many folks around about us, they can't actually see any difference between believers and folks who don't believe in Jesus. And it shouldn't be like that. That's not the way the Lord wants it to be. Now it has been said that we have put the demands of discipleship in fine print for fear that we will scare away prospects. One of the reasons for this is the defective theology which has crept over us like a developing
fog, and it is a, a, a theology that separates faith from discipleship and grace from obedience, and it teaches us that Jesus can be received as Savior, but not as Lord. So there are folks who will come to church, they will stick their hand up at a meeting, and they'll think, fantastic, I've got my fire insurance sorted out. And then they go back to the party that's called life. And that's really, really worrying. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that wonderful German theologian who was executed in Flossenburg, concentration camp in April 1945 um, he said he, he called this theology cheap grace let me quote what he says he says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline communion without confession absolution without personal confession cheap grace is grace without discipleship grace without the cross grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate now Socrates the Greek philosopher said the unexamined life is not worth living and it's all too easy for us to avoid reflection in, in churches we're encouraged to join a committee or go on a rota and serve the tea or to, to do one thing or another but we're rarely encouraged to pause and to examine our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and Peter asks a question and the question echoes down the centuries and it's this what kind of people ought you to be? and this is really Significant because we live in a day when the gospel tide seems to be ebbing a little bit. And what the world desperately needs to see, what Scotland needs to see, is Christ made visible in the lives of his people. We get the privilege of revealing Christ to a watching world. And they need to see, they really do. So let's go back and think about what our Lord actually said when he called the disciples. He said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Now I think that's very interesting. If you stop and look at that, the first three words, come follow me, there are two verbs in that. And a verb, as you know, is an action word. Come follow me. So we like to say to folks, listen, we need, you need to come to Jesus. And that's, that's right. But if that's all we do, then we're missing out on something really significant. You see, it's one thing to step up for Jesus. It's something totally different to step out for Jesus. If we step up for Jesus and stay still, what happens? Well, Jesus said follow. The word follow implies movement, doesn't it? So if we step up for Jesus and stay still, and Jesus moves away, there's going to be a big gap open up between us and him. And he didn't say to the disciples, just come to me. He said, come and follow me. And the call to follow Jesus runs right throughout the whole gospel. I wonder, do you remember what the last four words Jesus spoke to Peter that are recorded in the Gospels? 
the last four words. They're really significant. The first three words are, come follow me. And the last uh, four words are very significant too. We find them in John's Gospel, chapter 21. You remember that uh, Peter had blown it big time. He denied the Lord three times. Do you remember that? Uh, and then he thought, well, that's it. I've just, uh, I've just, I've blown it. So I, I, I'm going back to my old way of life. And he went back to fishing. And he wasn't confident enough to go back on his own. So he got some other folks to go with him. And they fished all night and caught nothing. Now, that wasn't uh, a unique experience for them. They fished all night and caught nothing. And there they saw on the shore a little fire and a figure standing. And uh, as they drew nearer, they... Who is it? And John said, it's the Lord. How amazing it was that Jesus had known that Peter had fished all night and caught nothing. So he was cold and he was hungry. So the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made heaven and earth, prepared a fire and cooked a breakfast for Peter. Isn't that amazing? And when John said, it's the Lord, Peter wraps his robe around, jumps out of the boat and, 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 and goes to the shore. Because Jesus had said, let down your nets. And they'd let down the nets. They caught 153 big fish. So it was such a staggering event that they knew it was the Lord. And Peter jumps out and he goes to the shore. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Do you love me more than these? And what's the These. I think it was the fish. <laughs> because the fish, that was his way of living. Do you love me more than your way of life? It could have been other things as well, of course. And uh, then Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And each time, uh, Peter said, Lord, you know that I do. I think that the three times mirrors the, the three denials of the Lord Jesus Christ and at the end of that uh, Jesus said to Peter uh, follow me uh, and then John was there uh, and Peter was a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus words were kind of sticking into him and hurting him and sometimes that's what happens to us too and we do exactly what Peter did so Peter turned around and said well what about him Lord and when the Lord is speaking to us, it's so much easier to say, Lord, I hope that old lady down the back is listening, because she really needs to hear this. Or you see that guy, Lord, he's been baptized in lemon juice. He needs to hear this. Instead of saying, Lord, what are you saying to me? Well, the last four words that Jesus said to Peter were these, you must follow me. So discipleship is all about following Jesus. And the words follow me appear about 20 times in the Gospels. So this morning we just want to simply ask the question, well what's actually involved in following Jesus? And I want to give you some just simple pointers that I hope will in encourage you. The first thing that's involved in following Jesus is obedience is obedience that simply means doing whatever he tells us in his word now I don't know what springs to your mind when the word obedience is used many years ago I had a commission in the Royal Hong Kong Police and we used to do a lot of marching around parade squares and uh, the, our DMI our drill and musketry instructor used to shout out orders and uh, we had to obey. So if he said jump, we said how high. And we jumped. And uh, we just did what we were told. So there's obedience. Um, 
But when it comes to the phrase, follow me, we generally think that Jesus is issuing an invitation. And so we invite people, you know, come and follow Jesus. I'll invite you to come to Jesus and to follow him. But actually, we know that Jesus will receive all who come to him and make them happy. Well, actually, he doesn't always make us happy. He's more concerned with our characters than he is with our comfort. And what he says about following him, that's not an invitation. It's actually a command. It's a command. And that's why Peter and John and James left everything and followed Jesus. You see, on his lips, his command was irresistible. That's another way of saying that without obedience, there is no real Christianity. It's not that people can't follow Jesus in a lesser sense and then fall away when the demands of genuine discipleship become clear to them. Many persons in the Gospels seem to have done this. Do you remember the rich young ruler? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knew that the most important thing to him was his wallet and his possession. So he said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. In other words, put me first. And the rich young ruler went away sad. Jesus looked at him and loved him. That's not the same as a sheep in Christ's flock hearing his call and responding to his voice as he recognizes Jesus as the shepherd, the Lord, and the master. Those who are genuinely Christ's sheep obey his call from beginning and enter into a life that is characterized by obedience. So when we read in the New Testament that we're to get up in the morning the Christian's wardrobe in Colossians and to put on kindness and to put on gentleness, that's not a suggestion, that's an instruction. To put on kindness, to put on gentleness and all the other things. So obedience is really significant. I remember as a very young Christian... um, All the joy seemed to have leaked out of my life. And I went to a service one evening and I listened to a guy preach and I went back to somebody's house for coffee when preacher was there and I spoke to him. And he was a a guy who latterly became quite a close friend of mine. But I said to him, you know, all the joy seems to have gone out in my Christian life. And he looked at me. And I said, I really don't know why. And he looked at me and he said, it's probably because God is asking you to do something. And you're not being obedient. And I instantly knew what it was. I used to smoke, plucked as a bland brand from the fire and still smoking. And uh, I, I, the, the, the issue was that, that God was telling me to stop and I was ignoring him. So I'm not making comments about smoking. I'm just talking about my response to his instruction to me because he could be saying something to you totally different. And if the joy is leaking from your life, the likelihood is that maybe he's asked you to do something, you're not doing it. We talk about, you know, financial sin and sexual sin, but we never talk about pride, really, or conceit or covetousness. And yet they're all the same. James says, if you've, if you've broken one of the laws, you're guilty of breaking the whole lot. Oh, we don't commit adultery. Well, Jesus said, if you look at a woman lustfully, that's it. You're guilty. And there's only one person who's never been guilty of sin, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all guilty. Every single one of us. 
So he's calling us to a lifetime of obedience. And then he's calling us to repentance. And I don't mean just the repentance that happens on the day we come to Jesus. He's calling us to repentance every single day. I think it's important we understand that. In Luke's account of the calling of the first disciples, it's quite interesting. Jesus goes along and uh, 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 the guys are are cleaning their nets in a boat and the folks want to listen to Jesus' teaching. So Jesus jumps into the boat. He says, could you pull out from the shore a little bit? So they pull out from the shore and then Jesus begins to preach and teach. And all the folks on the shore are listening as the fishermen are listening to what Jesus is saying. And then at the end uh, of the sermon, I don't know how long it was, Jesus said to Simon, would you put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch? And Simon answered, he says, Master, we've worked all night and we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. So when they let down the nets, they caught such a large number of fish that they had to get another boat to come and help them to deal with it. And uh, Simon uh, Peter was so amazed by it, by it all that he knew that he was in the presence of somebody extraordinary. And he, when he saw this, Luke says, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. His proximity to Jesus enabled him to discern the holiness of the Lord. But that made him very aware of the lack of holiness in his own life. And the truth is, it's impossible to follow Jesus without repentance, without a turning away from sin. And if you're like me and you put your trousers on one leg at a time, then sin touches your life every day. So every day we need to say, Lord, will you help us? Will you forgive us? Do you remember that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, they'd already had a bath? But they walked to the Passover and they had sandals on. Their feet got dirty. And as we walk through this world every day, we rub up against sin in one form or another. D.L. Moody said, repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. Repentance is the tear in the eye of faith. So if we're to follow him, obedience, repentance, and then submission... And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So the Lord Jesus pictures discipleship as putting on a yoke. Now, I don't know if you all know what a yoke is, but when I was small, we had a few acres at home. We didn't farm it, we rented it out. And the farmer had a tractor, but he also had horses that he worked with. And I remember the horses uh, pulling the, the mowing machine to mow the hay. And then they'd pull a big buck rake to, to gather it all up. And they would put up into haycocks. And he'd bring along a horse and trailer. And the, he'd, he'd unhitch the horse. The back of the trailer would go down. He'd put a rope around the, the, the haycock. And he'd, he'd use this winch. And he'd, he'd get the haycock up onto the, onto the trailer. And then he'd put it back to the horse. And he'd go away with it. But... Often they would work with two horses together. Like there you have a Clydesdale horse. I don't know if you know much about horses. But let me tell you, the Clydesdale horse, a great big draft horse, can pull a load of about 8,000 pounds. That's a lot, isn't it? 
Now if you put two horses together, how much do you think the, the horses could pull? If one can do 8,000, how many can two do? 8 and 8 is what? 16. Well, that's what I thought too. But actually, if you put two horses together and they could each pull 8,000 pounds working together, they can actually pull 24,000. 24,000. Yeah, 8,000. 24,000 is three times. So that's, that's the whole, that's synergy. That's called synergy. And generally, an experienced animal would be paired with a young animal in order so that the older animal might pass on some training. Because if you put two horses in a yoke and one wants to go right and the other wants to go left, they don't actually make much by way of progress. They have to kind of go in the same direction. So the older horse tends to be the lead horse, which is rather wonderful. Now, I think it's a beautiful picture of Christians working together, an older Christian and a younger Christian, mentoring, just journeying together. But I also think it's a very wonderful picture of us walking with the Lord. Galatians says we keep in step with the Spirit. And it's the Lord teaching us as we're walking together, because we're following, aren't we? Following. That leads us then on to the next thing that's involved. And there's only, two, there's only one other one after this. And it's commitment. It's impossible to follow Jesus without being committed to him. You see, if we're not committed to Jesus, we'll turn off the narrow way drawn by all sorts of fascinating things. And failure to follow really means being committed to following something or someone else other than Christ. Because we're all committed to following something. And if we're not committed to following Jesus, it means something or someone has taken his place in our lives. Now this has become a real hot potato. We talk about uh, Jesus as Savior and Lord. There are some folks who believe that you can have him as your Savior, but you, the Lord bit doesn't really matter. But actually it really does. Let me just give you a really interesting example from uh, the church in Ephesus you remember that uh, in Ephesus they were big into sorcery and kind of witchcraft stuff and they came to Jesus and Acts 19 tells us that many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them in public when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. And what's interesting, it had taken about two years from them meeting Jesus to them getting to the point of uh, letting go of these um, scrolls and things. I was out for a walk uh, 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 quite a while ago with uh, a dear friend of mine and I took a photograph of him at the uh, oak tree and that was at the shore of Loch Lomond. Well, you know what happens when the autumn comes? The leaves die, isn't that right? And then through the winter, the, the rain falls, the wind blows and the leaves blow all over the place but there are still some leaves on the tree. What finally dislodges the leaves? It's the rising sap, isn't it? The new life. And it's a little bit like that for us. We come to Jesus and there's all sorts of things that we do and we keep on doing. And then the Holy Spirit just kind of gives us a nudge and says, you know, maybe I don't want you to do that. Maybe I want you to do some other stuff. 
And we can kind of shrug and argue and, and, and have a little fight with them. But it's the new life that makes these things go away. I used to do a lot of shooting when I was there. I used to like to shoot pheasants and ducks and things. And um, I used to go to church and I had an MGBGT, a sports car. And I used to park it outside the little church. And uh, I'd had a, the dog was in it and the shotgun was in it. Uh, concealed, of course. And I'd come out of church and then I'd go away. And I'd go spend the afternoon shooting. That was on Sunday. I didn't come from a Christian background. I didn't know that you weren't supposed to do stuff on Sundays. Anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit got to work on me. And one day I went out. I was on my own. I had my dog and I went to this place. I'd never shot there before. I'd been given permission to shoot the shoots. And I went out and I suppose in the first 20 minutes I bang, bang, two pheasants. Great. And then I thought, what am I doing? And I, I put the gun in the car and the pheasants <laughs> and that was it. it it wasn't that I had to give it up it was God took all the joy away from me in, the, in that and I'm so grateful to, to him for doing that I really am so grateful for him to doing that now as a young Christian I used to hear the saying he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all Lord of all or not Lord at all John MacArthur wrote a book called Saviour and Lord. He's a preacher in America. He's got a massive big church. And when he wrote that book about Saviour and Lord, saying simply, look, he can't be your Saviour if he isn't your Lord, he lost about 4,000 members of his congregation. Wow! Because people didn't like that. Because it's kind of nice to have God in your life as fire insurance without actually having him as your Lord. Because if he's not your Lord, then... You can be kind of selective, you know. Instead of ten commandments, you can have eight. Or maybe seven. But he is Lord. And he actually wants to be Lord. And he wants us to have him as Lord. So, that's commitment. The commitment to be obedient. To repentance. To be submitted. And to persevere or to keep on going. You see, following Jesus is a choice that we make, not on a Saturday evening at an outreach meeting. Following Jesus is a choice that we make every single day. That's why in my last church we never talked about quiet times. We talked about chosen times. Because we choose to have them or not to have them. And following Jesus is a choice. The Bible says to us, it speaks to us of salvation in three different ways. It says you have been saved, which is a real encouragement. But then it says you are being saved. Look at verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. So you have been saved, you are being saved. And then Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 says, You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved you have been saved you are being saved and you will be saved you see discipleship is not a door that we walk through it's a path that we follow one step at a time one day at a time until our journey is finished I think it was Eugene Peterson who wrote a book about discipleship and he called it a long walk in the same direction and that's what it is and when Jesus called the first disciples, 
He wanted them not only to come to him, but to follow him. And that's what he wants for us too. There was a wonderful French lady in the 17th century called Madame Guillon, and she wrote a, a classic, and she said, If you are thirsty, come to the living waters. Do not waste your precious time digging wells that have no water in them. If you are starving and can find nothing to satisfy your hunger, then come. Come and you will be filled. You who are poor, come. You who are afflicted, Come, you who are weighed down with your load of wretchedness and your load of pain. Come, you'll be comforted. You who are sick and need a physician, come. Don't hesitate because you have diseases. Come to your Lord, show him all your diseases and you will be healed. Come. So what's he saying to us today? Well, I'd like to think that he's encouraging us. Telling us that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. I used to think they were spectators. <laughs> the uh, end of chapter, or the beginning of chapter 12 of Hebrews, and I used to think, man, they're up there looking down at Michael Healy, the thing, oh, fellow, would you look at the how slow that guy is running the race? But actually, they're not, they're not spectators. They're witnesses. And as witnesses, they're shouting out, and they're saying, keep going. It's worth it. Keep going. It's worth it. Yes, it's difficult. We run the race that's marked out for us. I couldn't run your race. You couldn't run my race. But it's worth it. Why? Because just over the horizon, and we don't know how far over the horizon, there's a finishing tap. And yes, we go through the valley of the shadow of death. But let me tell you this. There's no substance in a shadow. You'll never bump into a shadow and get bruised by it. The valley of the shadow of death, but more importantly, you only ever have shadows where you have light. And at the end of that valley, there is the light of Christ. And his arms are opened wide. And you know, when we get there, we're going to look back on this life, maybe. <laughs> what on earth was all the fuss about? This life is not very nice, is it? Really isn't. There is so much pain. But when we see him, we shall be so enthralled by his beauty and all the stuff that we've had to go through here really won't mean very much. It really won't. Why? Because we shall see him. We shall be like him. We shall be utterly captivated. And you know what I'm going to be looking forward to? I'm going to get a new voice. <laughs> I'm going to be able to sing. And... Uh, we're going to get new songs as well. Won't that be great? So he whispers to us, Come, follow me, keep going. Because it's worth it. And one day, by God's grace, in his presence, we shall be presented with crowns. There are five crowns that I read of in the New Testament. And you know something? The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin from which we are saved. But when he gives us our crowns, big and small, that's the one thing that we're going to be able to take off and lay at his feet. Isn't that marvelous? Oh, I look forward to that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you very much indeed for your precious word. And oh God, it's easy when we're seated in a comfortable room with uh, friends 
and church family. It's easy for us to uh, feel really good, but almost certainly there's at least one person here this morning and they're going through a really difficult time. We want to pray, Father, that you would reach out in love and put your arms around us and just remind us that you know everything. You understand. And sometimes you send opportunities brilliantly disguised as problems. So we pray for each other, O Lord, that you would help us, that we might be encouraged to keep following, to keep going. And in following, O Lord, that we might become the kind of disciples that you desire, so that on that day when we meet you, you will greet us with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Please help us, O Lord. Encourage us and make us encouragers of others. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.